Today, my guest is Dr. James Fox, an art historian and BAFTA-nominated broadcaster. James, you studied art history at university, and I just wondered what it was that made you make that decision to go and study that. Are are you an artist yourself? Is art something that's always been important in the family? What made you choose to study it? Well, I I was pretty much... I wasn't a lover of art from a young age. I was more interested in Superman and uh, football stickers and the kinds of things that most children are interested in. Um, but I remember I had a particular experience when I was dragged by my father to a, a gallery, the Stanley Spencer Gallery in Cookham, uh, one Saturday or Sunday. And I really didn't want to go. And he bribed me to go by offering me football stickers. I think it was Italia 1990. <laughs> it was the, the World Cup 1990 uh, football stickers I was after at the time. And I remember seeing a painting there by Stanley Spencer called The Scarecrow Cookham that just had this amazingly visceral impact on me. And that was really, I, I haven't looked back since. I became fascinated in art from that moment onwards. Um, And I became a very uh, active painter. I painted a lot. I made lots of copies of that particular painting and then lots of copies of other paintings. And my ambitions really, as I, as I, you know, uh, became 17, 18 and was approaching the end of school, were to become an artist. But I did ultimately realise that I wasn't quite talented enough. I was a relatively proficient copyist. Uh, but I just wasn't good enough. Uh, and so I thought, well, what else could I do? Where else can I sort of focus my attention of, you know, my love of art on? And art history became the subject for me. So um, there wasn't a particular history of that in my family. My dad was very interested in art, but I was the first person in my family to go to university. So it was a quite bizarre uh, choice, I suppose, in some respects. But um, I, I haven't looked back since. When you got to university, were you immediately aware that you'd make the right decision? Was it something that you immediately got stuck into and you found it as as validating, as, as interesting as being an artist would have been? Yes, I, I, I did. I mean, I, I, I did actually carry on painting a little bit on my, in my spare time in the holidays. But um, yeah, I was completely uh, intoxicated because, uh, you know, uh, Cambridge, where I studied, had so many great museums and galleries. Uh, there were so many wonderful artworks to see in the flesh and to all, and some of them to even handle, you know, prints and things like that. Um, I found it tremendously inspiring and I got more inspired as the as the course went on. And I, yeah, and I think I am. Um, I, I, I was never really in doubt. There was a brief moment where I considered changing to English literature, actually, um, because Rob McFarlane, you know, who's famous for his nature writing, had just arrived at my college and he was teaching and inspiring all these uh, young English students. And I was slightly envious of uh, of them. But it was only a very hot, a brief, short-lived uh, flirt with uh, changing to the subject. And, uh, and yes, yeah, so I stuck with History of Art ever since. You studied a lot of 20th century art and that's something that you now specialise in. Over the 20th century, a lot of art and a lot of the works that you've studied have been the result of conflict and struggle in society and humanity. And we're going through an unprecedented struggle, unprecedented being the word that everyone is using. We're going through a real struggle at the moment. And I think it's going to be a very interesting time for art. But something I wanted to ask you was, I live in Bristol and Mm. I'm sure you've seen in the news that Edward Colston has been thrown thrown into the river there a lot of people talk about that rewriting history they say that what's happened there is denying the past do you think those things deserve a place in a museum 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, I thought you might ask me this question. <laughs> it's a. It's a really <laughs> difficult one, especially if you're an art historian, because as an art historian, you are taught to uh, to preserve uh, the objects that uh, cultures from the past uh, have made. Uh, however good as artworks they are or bad or whatever ideologies they seem to represent you want to try to uh, to preserve them so you can learn from them and learn from uh, why people did the things they did why they thought the things they did what they thought was important at any given point in time uh, so i'm uh, i've always been uh, critical of destruction of things and iconoclasm however I think that there are certain situations um, and certain kinds of artwork where different rules apply. And I think public statues are not uh, uh, are, are not just about uh, work. They're not just works of art. They are also political statements. They are uh, glorifications of the people who are put up in them. And I think that uh, there are many complicated figures in in the in British history. Uh, many figures who have achieved good things and bad things have made major changes for better and for worse. And it's important we are aware of their uh, history as well as our own history as a country. I think Colston seems to me to be a relatively unambiguous figure. I mean, this man was a slave trader. He is responsible for kidnapping, buying and selling tens of thousands of people and killing well. And I think this, this statue should have come down a long time ago. Uh, that said, I do think that it shouldn't have been destroyed. Uh, I think it should you know, go into a museum where we can study it and think about it. Um, and I think what we also need to think about more broadly is better awareness of our own past. Uh, we're all taught in history the same old stuff. We're taught about, you know, the Tudors. We're taught about the First World War. We're taught about fighting against the Nazis. But I think a lot of people grow up not being aware of the full um, the full reality of British history, the role we played in the slave trade, the role we played in, in colonising and exploiting other countries around the world. So I think it's important that we think about this rather than just removing statues and almost pretending it never happened or whitewashing it. That we, this is actually this provokes a much more comprehensive and thoughtful analysis of 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 what we've done right and what we've done wrong in our history. That awareness of our history and the social justices and sensitivity towards colonised people that came through a lot to me in your documentary Oceans Apart mm. Art and the Pacific. Yeah. You spoke to a lot of indigenous Aboriginal people. Mm. When you want to go and talk to them about their artwork and their history, when they know that you're you know, a descendant. a descendant of the people who pillaged their land, how do they react to your interest in their artwork, knowing that in the past your people would have been nothing but trouble to them. Yeah, it was a it was a fascinating project to work on for that very reason. Uh, because you know, in this country, it was part of that series was was provoked by the anniversary of Captain Cook's voyages to the South Seas, and his so called, although he didn't discover these things, but so called discovery of New Zealand and Australia and various other places. Um, and in this country, we think of 
Captain Cook in a very good light. We think of him this remarkable enlightenment explorer and discoverer. Um, and he was, you know, there he had many good qualities. But when you go to New Zealand, he is a deeply toxic individual in many respects uh, because he was the person alongside a number of other Western arrivals who brought disease and uh, destruction and death to people who had lived in those places for many hundreds and sometimes thousands of years. And so when we told the people we were going to interview, the indigenous people we were making a programme for the BBC back in Britain to mark the anniversary of Captain Cook, they were very uh, reluctant, they were very apprehensive at first. And um, we tried in making that series to be as balanced as possible and to have as many voices and as many diverse voices as possible, because this is, like all history, very contested. I have actually just a short question about the understanding of their culture. And the first frame of the first episode is a message warning the uh, viewers of the programme that there's footage of people in the show who have passed away since the show's recording and I just wanted to know what the um, the reason that they ask you to do that is. These are legal requirements um, when uh, you are dealing with uh, various indigenous communities and particularly those in Australia um, there is a great deal of sensitivity towards showing images uh, of people who have died for their own religious, spiritual and cultural reasons. And so that is why we had to, um, had to, uh, were legally required to have that caption at the start. Something that I notice is a theme in your documentaries is less just looking at paintings and talking about the artists, but much more of how they're woven into our culture and our daily lives. And that's definitely shown in Art of Japanese Life, where you talk about household objects and cities and how everything around us is affected and influenced by artwork mm. and I wanted to know is that something is that how you pr try to live your life now is that something that you try to include in every decision you make you try and consider things a lot and find beauty in everyday things is that the way you live your life at the moment well I like to think so obviously I mean th th I feel very strongly that um I'm opposed to these distinctions, these artificial distinctions we make between high art and low art or high culture and popular culture. Um, everything is culture. Everything we as humans do is culture, whether it's watching football or watching Netflix or the clothes we buy or the food we eat or the you know paintings we like to look at. Everything is part of our cultural lives. It's part of the stuff that we do uh, to, to make meaning in our lives and to derive, uh, to create pleasure in our lives. I think it's really artificial to try to separate those from each other, to separate, you know, reading a comic book from reading Shakespeare, for instance. Uh, these are really old-fashioned divisions uh, in my view so I think that yeah that's in my programs and in my academic work I always try to think about the connections between society and all forms of culture and high culture and low culture if you're using those phrases in my own life yes I, I you know I, I take great pleasure in I do uh, collect art myself very modestly priced I must say uh, but I don't have a large budget but I buy as much as I can I put it on my walls because it gives me pleasure 
in the same way it gives me pleasure to drink coffee out of a nice cup or to uh, sit and do my work in a nice chair. Um, so I think that, you know, that that is something that consider as part you know both intellectually and personally to be very important you mentioned there that you don't like the divisions between high and low culture or as they're named and something that's quite often mentioned in reviews of your documentary work is that you have a, a lack of pretension about the way you speak about art and I wanted to know if that's something that you consciously make sure that you include in the way you deliver a documentary and if you think that that pretension is something that still prevents people from getting into art and when in terms of paintings and galleries and that side of things oh definitely i mean i, I you know as i say i was the first person in my family to go to university um i felt very intimidated about studying an academic environment like cambridge um and I uh, encountered, you know, lots of pretension there from people who were who came from more illustrious backgrounds than me, and I read lots of books as any student does that had so much jargon in, uh, and were very difficult to follow. And I feel that often academics do tend to use language in very complicated ways that can often put off general readers. I think the art world is a terrible perpetrator of using complicated language and long words and unnecessary jargon to make things sound cleverer than they are. And I think this puts a lot of people off. And so I try very hard in everything I do to use language simply to explain things as clearly as possible um, and also to just share my enthusiasm. I mean, the reason I do these programmes, the reason I study art and write about art and read art is I love art. I love looking at it. I love thinking about it. I love uh, sharing my joy in it with other people. And I don't want to, uh, and I, I don't think being pretentious or trying to use, you know, clever words, unnecessarily clever words, helps you communicate that joy. something that you have been doing since lockdown is sharing artworks that you personally like on your twitter feed and you've also there was a little spot on news night where you were doing the same and you've made a real effort to be sharing artwork and keeping people positive and engage with art when we can't leave our homes and you recently tweeted that quite possibly your favorite painting is a painting called flagellation by piero della francesca yes and it's not a painting i'd ever seen before you tweeted it and I just wonder what it was about that one that made it stand out because you've seen countless paintings in your career I'm sure so what is it about that one that makes it a cut above well let me ask you off the, make a point before that and then I will come on to that quite happily in that yes I did at the start of lockdown I thought it would be a, a good thing to, to just share um, share paintings, artworks that I liked and gave me pleasure, and I really enjoyed doing that. I've, uh, I'm a very anxious tweeter. I'm, uh, I find it very, it, it gives me a great deal of, uh, you know, get a great deal of anxiety because I never quite know how to phrase things. Uh, I never know which artworks to choose. I'm astonished when I see people tweeting, you know, a hundred tweets a day. I don't know how they do it, and it was taking a huge amount of my time up just thinking, what artwork am I going to choose for today? What am I going to say about it? Um, um, and uh, when uh, and and gradually, I've kind of it became too difficult for me because I was you know we didn't have any childcare, 
I was finding it very difficult to find time to sort of spend two hours thinking about my favourite artwork. So it has slowed down of late, but now we have childcare. I'm going to begin uh, posting an image a day again. But going to the subject of the Piero della Francesca, yes, this has been my favourite artwork for some time. Uh, I remember uh, uh, when I was a teenager going to Italy, going to Urbino, which is where the painting is based. And I went into the castle of Urbino, which is now a a public civic museum and walking down this long corridor and at the end of the corridor there was this painting and it was so small and so precious and so absolutely exquisite it was completely overwhelming experience to find this painting and uh, what I loved about it initially was the was the preciousness the jewel-like quality of it the fact it was so small and the fact that it was so precise in everything it did you know the outlines the contours the way the perspective is created the details are truly amazing and I tried to copy this painting many many times and often when you copy a painting it's only then you realize how extraordinary it is as a formal achievement but later I began to study the content of it and began to realise that it was also a deeply mysterious picture. It was a very, very unusual decision at the time by Piero della Francesca to paint a religious picture in which Christ is placed in the background, almost like an afterthought. While in the foreground you have these three figures who are dressed in temporary dress, 15th century dress, and no one really knows who they are. And in the original frame of that painting, Piero had uh, left uh, an inscription in Latin uh, that translated into, they met together. So clearly, three figures, the meeting of these three figures was of great importance to Piero and to the person who commissioned them. But we, we really don't know who those people are. There have been lots of guesses and attempts at trying to understand who they are. Some have suggested it's an allegorical painting about the Eastern Church and the Western Church. Some have suggested it's uh, about the court and the politics of the time. Um, and and one person has suggested this is the this painting is the um, solution to a murder that someone in the family uh, in Urbino was murdered a few years earlier, and this painting reveals who actually committed that murder. I think that's pretty unlikely, but I think that you know for me that painting has everything a great artwork should have. It is beautiful. It is incredibly made, and it is filled with questions. It generates questions that we can't very easily answer. Do you feel like any of those possible answers make the most sense to you? Uh, well, as I say, I think the one that the, the, the murder mystery one seems the least plausible. Uh, I presume that um, it's very difficult to know. I presume that these are, uh, I would suggest they are real figures rather than allegorical figures because they are so precise, the, the likenesses are so precise and specific. And they, I suspect, might be advisors in the court of Urbino uh, or figures, important figures in the court of Urbino that would have meant something to uh, the person who commissioned it. But my guess is as good as anyone's really. You're currently working on a book which is titled The Meaning of Colour. And I was wondering what we could all expect from that. What are you actually writing about in that book? This book has taken me eight years to write. Uh, it has been a long process. I started it in 2012. Uh, I was very I've always been very interested in colour. It's one of the things that's great about studying art is by studying art, you are studying colour. 
Uh, and in 2012, I made a series for the BBC called A History of Art in Three Colours. And I felt there was so much more to say, so many more colours to discuss. And I was approached by Penguin, by Alan Lane, which is a of Penguin, to write a book about colour. And I thought, oh, this is great. I'll do this in a year or two, a couple of years, write, a, write this book about colour. But of course, colour is huge as a subject. It covers everything, all of history, all of time, all of space. And so year by year, this book became bigger and more and more complicated. So, yes, I spent eight years writing it uh, and it is now pretty much finished. Um, it's a book that essentially tells it, it, its newer title. I don't know if this is the finished title is um, going to be The World According to Colour. And it is uh, I've written it as a kind of history of the universe uh, according to seven colours. Uh, so it begins with the Big Bang. 13.7, 13.8 billion years ago. Uh, and it explores our uh, obsession with darkness uh, in the first chapter and our emergence from darkness. In chapter two, which is on red, it, uh, it which is based around red, it's about the emergence of the human species. Then in, episode, in, in chapter three, I talk about the rise and fall of religion. In chapter four, I talk about blue and the age of discovery. In chapter five, which is about white. I talk quite a lot about the enlightenment and rate and the emergence of race, racial science and racial prejudice. Chapter six is about purple and that's about the industrial revolution. And chapter seven is green. And that is about the, uh, in our relationship to the environment. So it begins with the big bang and it ends with the, uh, with climate change, uh, through the prism of seven colors. And it, go, it, it, it covers all cultures. Well, many, many cultures around the world, uh, so it's been a big, big uh, task, but I'm pretty much finished now. That must feel like you've really covered an incredible amount of artwork if you've covered literally the entire history of, of the universe. That's a very big task. Well, to take yeah, on. and not ju not just art, of course. I've, 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 you know, it covers philosophy, it covers biology and chemistry and physics and history and society and art forms and, and literature and um, and architecture and all kinds of art forms. It covers a bit of everything. So yes, it has been a uh, a very demanding process. I've had to learn a lot. I've had to translate a lot of text. Um, often with the help of search engines, um, but it's been yeah, it's been a long process. But I'm I'm very happy with it so far, and I think it should um, either come out later this year or early next year. But it has basically been the defining project for me of the last eight years. I have done uh, other work, obviously. I've published a couple of other books, academic books and articles, and obviously done the broadcasting work. But this has been the thing that has been rumbling away in the background. Uh, since 2012-2013. How about in terms of um, do your documentary work? Is there anything that you're working on at the moment? Yes, so um, uh, at the moment I am, I'm working on a couple of interesting projects. Uh, there's a, a series in the offing uh, about art and nature, the relationship between art and nature through history, which is um, we're developing at the moment and hopefully... It's obviously very difficult to go out and film things at the moment because um, so much travel and so much of the, the process of filming is uh, almost impossible to do now. So everything's slightly up in the air, but there is this art and nature project. Uh, and I'm also working on a uh, another little project that's quite interesting, which is um, building 
3D models uh, online through computer game engines of famous artworks, which enables us to then enter the artwork and uh, unpack it from, if you like, the inside out. So we are, there's a famous painting by uh, Edward Hopper called Nighthawks, which many people recognise. It's those three people sitting in a diner in New York night. Uh, we have built a 3D model of uh, of the diner, of that famous diner, and we are going to make a brief film about entering into that diner, walking around it, seeing the people there, and unlocking some of its mysteries. And that's just a bit of a pet project, actually, but that's something I'm working on over the next few months. On Who's Flying the Plane, we like to give our guests the chance to shine a light on what we call a hidden gem. So for you, I imagine this would be an artwork or an artist who you think has gone under the radar. So who would you like to offer as your hidden gem? By me. I think probably what I would say is that coronavirus has done a huge amount of damage to the cultural sphere. And there are many museums and many galleries around the country and indeed around Europe and the world that were just about hanging on anyway and uh, they um, this has really made things far more difficult for them and I'm sure that the big institutions you know the Tate and the National Gallery and the British Museum will bounce back fine but there are lots of wonderful little galleries and museums around this country that we really need to support in the aftermath of this crisis. Otherwise, we may never have them again. And uh, some of them, you know, there's the Towner Art Gallery, there's the Fry Art Gallery in Saffron Walden, there's Kettle's Yard in Cambridge, there's the Stanley Spencer Gallery in Cookham. Uh, there are all these little institutions dotted around the country that contain wonderful works of art and contribute a huge amount to their local communities. And... Uh, we need to really ensure that they they keep going in the aftermath of this crisis. You've got your book coming out shortly and there's several of your um, documentaries that are available on BBC iPlayer at the moment. Um, but how can we follow you on social media and keep up to date with what you're working on? Yeah, well, as I say, you can follow me on Twitter uh, at Dr James Fox. As I say, I'm a an anxious tweeter and sometimes go through long periods without uh, sending any tweets. But as I say, I am planning uh, in the next couple of days to start up an image uh, of the week, uh, an image of the, sorry, an image of the day uh, posting of artworks that I like and I think other people should get to know and should also like. Uh, so that, I think, is the way to go. I, I don't really use Instagram or Facebook. Uh, I'm, I'm really quite a Luddite, actually. I mean, even Twitter's a bit of a challenge for me. Um, so, so, But I think that, yeah, if you follow me on Twitter at, at Dr. James Fox, you will, from the next couple of days, start to get uh, really interesting and lovely artworks every day. Okay, thanks a lot for talking to me and taking the time to uh, t share about your projects and your artworks. Thank you, James. Alex. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, it's really nice to talk to you. Mm -hmm.